And God knows that Satan loves to divide God's people. He doesn't want unanimity. The devil has a threefold ministry. He comes to destroy, he comes to deceive, and he comes to divide. And if he can divide the people of God, he will. But we are to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 12 of our study of the book of Romans. In this chapter, we've looked so far at having our minds renewed in the power of the Holy Spirit, and through that same Spirit, receiving and operating a number of spiritual gifts. Today, as Pastor Berge begins a message entitled, The Christian and Retaliation, we look at our interrelationship with other believers, particularly those who are experiencing difficult situations. Let's join Dr. Brogy. We turned a corner just a few weeks ago in the book of Romans. We completed the doctrinal section in chapters one through eight, and I gave you three key words for the doctrinal section condemnation, justification, sanctification that summarized chapters one through eight. Then we went into the national section of Romans. In chapters one through eight, God's righteousness is revealed for that is the theme of Romans, the righteousness of God. But in chapters nine through 11, his righteousness is vindicated, it's proved. If nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, then how do we deal with God's dealings with Israel? And so in chapter 9 of Romans, he speaks of Israel's election. He's not dealing with personal election. He's dealing with national election. And so I gave you one word, election, for chapter 9. In chapter 10, I gave you the word rejection. Why is it that Israel is in unbelief? And then we looked at chapter 11 and those great promises from the Old Testament of a future restoration when Israel will come in faith and bow before Jesus and call him Lord. Then we move into the practical section. And again, the pattern we find here is seen through all of Paul's epistles because what we believe should influence how we behave. Doctrine and duty always are brought together in the scripture. And in this section, I want to give you three key words. The key word for this chapter is the word bond. In the practical section, beginning in chapter 12, in the first two verses, he spoke of our bond to God, that we're living sacrifices and we are to lay ourselves as such before him. Then in verses 3 through 13, last time, we looked at our bond to other believers, how we are to relate to one another. And then the chapter closes with our text today, verses 14 to 21, where he deals with our bond to an unbelieving world. And by the way, this is the exact pattern Jesus uses in John 15. He describes our relationship to God, then our relationship to each other, and then our relationship to the world. So that's the context. Let's begin by reading our passage, Romans 12, beginning now in verse 14, where we left off. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never Take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you were here last time, we looked at verses 9 to 13, our relationship with one another. There's a certain way we are to treat each other. Now Paul wants to highlight our relationship to the world. There's a certain way we are to relate to an unbelieving world, especially a world that will sometimes hate us as Christians. Jesus never did anything ever wrong. He was sinless. And if they hated him, then they will at times hate you, for a servant is not above his master. But unfortunately, many times they hate us, not for the offense of the cross, but because we have been unnecessarily offensive. Some Christians wear the banner, I am being persecuted. They ought to have a sign over their head, I am being obnoxious. So God doesn't want us to be persecuted for being obnoxious, but for being Christ-like. And so to understand how we relate to an unbelieving world, he gives us four simple principles. First, he teaches us that we are to disarm our opposition. There's a note-taking outline for those that are new. There, the first point is we are to disarm our opposition. Many Christians, I think, assume certain airs that's rather objectionable to their unsaved neighbors. And while we are to maintain absolute loyalty to Jesus Christ, neither should we necessarily antagonize unbelievers. We shouldn't be a holier-than-thou kind of person, pious in our attitude. In fact, we should be looking for opportunities to make contact with an unbelieving world. And we live in a day where we have confused separation from the world with separation from sin. God calls us to separate from sin, but not from sinners. Jesus was a friend of sinners. And certainly this church, like many like it across the nation, will have special opportunities during the year to reach out to an unbelieving world. Certain meetings, certain events, certain seminars. But why would an unbeliever want to come to that invitation if we're not building a bridge into their life? Typically, they won't come. Now, sovereignly, God is preparing people, and you meet some people once, and they're ready to respond, much like the woman at the well. That's not friendship evangelism. If it is, the friendship was about five minutes before he got into the gospel. But there are other people you have to build a bridge into their life, and as we build that bridge... Then they become more open and responsive. God uses our Christ-likeness to build that bridge into the church. And so he tells us here, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. I almost entitled this sermon, Paul's Sermon on the Mount, because a number of the teachings here mimic what Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Most persecution in this life will not be physical. That's been true in the history of the church. Most of the persecution that has taken place has been verbal. Though some saints today, even this morning, I'm sure somewhere will give their life for the cause of Christ. But as we move to the end of the age, even physical persecution will increase. And as darkness envelops the world, as sin has its holiday, people will become more and more and more opposed to the light. But Jesus said, you're blessed when people insult you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
for the count of righteousness because your reward in heaven is great. And so God tells us our attitude should be bless those who persecute us. When I was in Israel, I observed a number of Arabs and I noticed they have a way of touching the head, the lips, and the heart. And when they do this, they're saying, I think highly of you. I speak well of you and my heart beats for you. That's to be our attitude even towards those who oppose us. Paul is saying, listen, when someone persecutes you, speak well of them. When someone criticizes you, criticizes you, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but instead give a blessing. The word bless here is the Greek word oulageo. We get our word eulogized from it. You know what we do when we eulogize someone at a funeral? We speak kind words of them. And so we are to speak kindly even of those who would persecute us. And that's exactly what our Lord did. He practiced precisely what he preached. He prayed for people who insulted him, who hated him while on the cross, who despitefully scorned him. Even the thief on the cross, who at one point in the crucifixion was blaspheming and insulting the Lord Jesus. Jesus was kind and compassionate and even saved him that day and opened the gates of heaven for him. Even that man who helped crucify him, he was so impressed with the Lord Jesus and his spirit and his attitude on those six hours on that place we call Golgotha that he said, surely this was the Son of God. Truly this was the Son of God. And so the Lord Jesus, like Paul, commands us to bless those who persecute us. And please never forget, this is a man who saw this truth lived out before his own life. Remember, it was the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, who gave leadership for they laid the robes at Paul's feet. That meant he was the point man. And he gave leadership on that day when Stephen, that great preaching deacon, gave one of the most powerful sermons from the entire Old Testament, proving that Jesus was Messiah. And what did they do? They stoned him to death. And what did Stephen do? He said and prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Augustine said in the fourth century, the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen. Indeed, they did. Paul would never, ever, ever forget that this one whom he was persecuting in return, he blessed. I saw a bumper sticker and I wrote this down there, the red light. It said, don't get mad, get even. Do unto others before they do it unto you. That's the, that's what our sinful nature wants us to do. But God wants us to do the exact opposite of what our sinful nature wants us to do. Jesus said it in this way, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. This is the law and the prophets. And he illustrates that all the way through the Sermon on the Mount in the parallel passage where he gives the same sermon on a different occasion. He said this in Luke 6, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And again, it's the word eulogy, eulageo. You speak well of them, even those who hate you. And to illustrate how we flesh this out in daily behavior, he gave a number of illustrations all the way through that sermon. If you remember, he said, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let them have your coat also. Even under the law of Moses, if you had someone's coat as a uh, security for some debt they owed them, at the end of the day, you had to give them that coat back so they could use it during the night. 
Your coat was an important blanket. It not only covered you during the day, but it was your blanket at night. But under the new covenant, Jesus is saying, the kind of behavior I am calling you to is so radical, you need to be willing, even if they ask for your shirt, to give them your coat as well. Further, he said, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. In the days of Christ, it was the law of the land that if a Roman soldier came through your town and he wanted you to carry that pack, he could ask you to and you would have to. And of course, Jesus says this in Israel, in a place where the Romans had oppressed the Jews and the Jews hated doing this. They hated serving these people, not just because of the inconvenience, but because these people oppressed them. And Jesus said, in essence, you are to say to that Roman soldier, I will not only carry your pack one mile, I will carry it two. In other words, our property, our possessions, our liberty is to be governed in such a way that we are bestowing blessings even to those who oppose us. Watchman Nee, not Watchman Lee. I said that once, and they said, oh, Watchman Lee. Watchman Lee was a heretic, and he started a heretical movement that is still in place in our day. But Watchman Nee, N-E-E, was a great Chinese Christian leader and pastor, and he spoke of one man in his congregation who loved Christ, and next door was a confessed atheist, the leader in the Communist Party there in China where Watchman Nee served. And that farmer every day would have to irrigate his field. And he, he sat on, you've probably seen these in some of the old movies, what looked like a bicycle, and he would be pumping the water out of the canal into his field. And as soon as his field was filled, that communist leader would come and remove the boards and allow all the water to flow into his rice paddy. And it bothered him to no end, and he began to develop an angry, bitter spirit, knowing that he could do nothing against this communist leader. And he says, Lord, if this keeps going on, I'm going to lose all of my crop, maybe even my field, and how will I be able to care for my family? And every time this man would reach out to him and even share the love of Christ, he'd be scorned and hated. And so God then impressed upon him this verse from Romans chapter 12 and verse 14. And he woke up the next day in the pre-dawn hours and he pumped that little bicycle pump and he filled up his neighbor's field and then he filled up his field. And he began doing this day after day after day. He was blessing even his enemy and that communist came to faith in Jesus Christ. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Then he adds in verse 15, notice, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, often we take this verse and we apply it to each other, the body of Christ, and that is certainly a legitimate application. But in this entire paragraph, he's speaking about our dealings with an unbelieving world. And one way that we can make a point of contact with an unbelieving world is to enter into both their joy and into their heartache. That's what the Lord Jesus did. I think it's interesting that the very first miracle he ever did, he did at a wedding. And the very last miracle he ever did, he did at a funeral. He entered into both the joys and the sorrows of people's lives. He was there at one of the gladdest hours. He was there at one of the saddest hours. And so Jesus, by his life, rejoiced with those who rejoiced, and he wept with those who wept. And we as believers are to do the same thing. We are to enter into the joys of lost people. Maybe it's a wedding, maybe it's the birth of a baby, maybe it's the graduation of a child, maybe it's a new job, a new house, a job promotion. We ought to rejoice with them, and that's an opportunity to make contact. 
But we should also enter into their sorrow and the death of a loved one and the discovery that they've lost their job or they have some terminal disease or their spouse has abandoned them for another person. We recently had someone come to meet the pastor, and after meet the pastor, I often chat with a number of the people. I said, well, how did you happen to come? And she said, oh, it was because one of your church members. I needed someone to drive me to the hospital for my cancer treatments, and this lady, week after week after week, picked me up. That was making contact at a point of sorrow and heartache with an unbeliever, and that woman came and heard the gospel that night. So God wants us to rejoice with those who rejoice. For some Christians, it's easier to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice, especially if they are enjoying success that you're not enjoying. And so your coworker comes to you and says, hey, I've got great news. I'm your new boss. And you say, praise the Lord, <laughs> you know. It's difficult sometimes for some to rejoice in other people's success. And what's the opposite of not rejoicing with those who rejoice? It's envying over those who do rejoice, competing with them, avoiding them, resenting them, having a spirit, God, why are you blessing them and you're not blessing me? And so we are sometimes, because we're so full of self, and we don't really believe in the providence of God over our lives, that He attends to every detail, we're unable to rejoice with those who rejoice. On the other end of the spectrum, there are those who are so full of themselves they cannot weep with those who weep. Oh, um, you'll meet with them and they'll tell you about every problem they have. Your heart's broken and you start speaking to them and they do the same thing they do every time you see them. They rehearse their physical aches, their physical pains, their financial troubles, their marital issues, their sicknesses, and on and on and on. And they never even once ask you how you're doing because they're full of self. And so they're unable to weep with those who weep. Now, if that's you today, then come clean with the Lord Say, God, that's me, but I don't want to be this way, and I thank you I don't have to be this way. And so I'm laying myself before you as a living sacrifice, allowing you today to renew my mind so that I might come and test and prove and know that your will is something that is good and acceptable and perfect. But remember, he's dealing here with our interfacing with an unbelieving world. And so he reminds us first that we are to disarm our opposition. Second, if we are to have a healthy relationship with an unbelieving world, then we need to mind our manners. We need to mind our manners. Look now, if you will, at verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Not only are we to show sympathy, understanding, and friendship to the unsaved, we're also to watch over our own attitudes lest we be guilty of partiality and pride. Be of the same mind towards one another. Now, we've already seen from this chapter that uh, uniformity and unanimity are two different things. God calls us to union, to unanimity, but not necessarily uniformity. He's made us different. He has created us differently. We've seen that we have different natural talents, different spiritual gifts, that we are different. 
And so while we are different from one another, we still have the same Savior. We have the same salvation, the same hope, the same desire to glorify God. And we've been welded together by the payment of Christ's blood and through the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit. And he's made us a family. Now, when you come to this verse, because the whole paragraph is dealing with our relationship to the lost, and you come here to verse 16, it just kind of seems to be out of place, almost out of context. And when I worked through this passage again, I kind of struggled with that. And I said, Lord, you know, why are you skipping now to our dealings to one another when you've been talking all the way through about our dealings with lost people? Because God knows that the training ground to be able to do this with unbelievers starts here in the church. You see, if a believer cannot do this with some of the most gracious people in the world, then how will they ever be able to do it with an unbelieving world? And so he says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Doesn't matter who the people may be, noble or ignoble, rich or poor, black or white, cultured or uncultured, educated, uneducated. It doesn't matter. Jesus said that we are to treat people with the same compassion and we are not to be haughty in mind. And so Jesus showed the same care, love, and attention to a woman at a well who was filled with a life of adultery as he did to that cultured, educated man, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3. On the cross, he was his carrying to the thief, bleeding and dying there next to him as he was to his own mother. He was as patient in the Gospels in his dealing with Judas, who hated him, who opposed him, who was the son of opposition, as he was with the beloved John, who loved him deeply. This, by the way, is a very similar command that you find in Philippians and all the way through Paul's epistles. For instance, in Philippians 1.27, the apostle wrote, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Philippians, like in Romans 12, 16, God is calling us to behave in a way that is consistent with the gospel. We are to live in a lifestyle that is consistent with the gospel. He said it this way to the church at Ephesus. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He told the Colossians this, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good deed. To the church at Thessalonica, he said, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. One of our greatest testimonies as Christians is our spiritual integrity. But when we live like the world, when we blur gender distinctions, when we lie, when we cheat, when we are immoral, when we are no different from the world, then we're not living a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have nothing to offer the world. You see, the great seeker-sensitive movement in this country says, in essence, to win the world, we need to become like the world. And so they design their services even with worldly, godless music in it. Why? Because they want to win them. That's not the way you win the world. You may bring them to your church, you may fill seats, but you will not win them to genuine salvation. 
No, it's our distinctiveness from the world. It's our differentness. It's our saltiness. It is our light that dispels darkness that wins an unbelieving world. And so let me read all of Philippians 1.27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. That's what we're talking about here in our text in Romans. Standing firm in one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. If you know Philippians, this is the very first hint that there was even a problem in the church because it's one of the healthiest churches in all the New Testament. And when he comes to the first chap- fourth chapter, he's going to mention two women who are squabbling, and he'll actually mention them by name. And God knows that Satan loves to divide God's people. He doesn't want unanimity. The devil has a threefold ministry. He comes to destroy, he comes to deceive, and he comes to divide. And if he can divide the people of God, he will. But we are to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Now, strife in a church does not always come from such flagrant sins like adultery or stealing or drunkenness. In fact, strife usually amongst the people of God comes from a loss of focus where they have forgotten what it is that God has called them to be and what he has commissioned them to do. They have lost their vision, and so they become inward. And when their focus is inward and not outward towards a lost, unbelieving world, which is the thrust of our whole passage to make us effective towards those people, when they have lost their vision, all they can do is see the faults and idiosyncrasies in their brother. But Jesus gave us a great commission. And when the great commission becomes your commission, not my commission as a preacher, not the evangelist's commission, not the missionary's commission, but your commission as a member of the body of Christ, because it is yours that God has personally called you to go into this lost world and to win the lost, then and only then will you be consistently filled with the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, He is a unifying Spirit. And so when you go into local churches that are engaged in winning the lost, for Christ, their focus is outward and not inward. And they do not begin to see that division that so many churches see. So we're to strive together for the hope of the gospel. You know, during the Second World War, they said that you could often tell where their troops were at by the kinds of things they complained about. When they complained about the food or the housing, the generals knew they were not in the thick of the battle. But when they said, send us ammunition, send us backup, we need more supplies, then they knew they were in the thick of the battle. And you go into a church and you hear some person complain all the time about the scuffs in the wall and the dirt on the rug and this and that, all the little things that bother them, you're speaking to someone who's not in the battle. They're on the sidelines. But you get them out there in the battle. You get them to contend for what Jude calls the faith once delivered to the saints for all time, and everything begins to change. So he says, be of the same mind toward one another. But while he wants us to be unified and not divided, neither does he want us to be partial and proud. So notice what he adds here. Do not be haughty in mind but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Pride has no place in the life of the believer. And one way of guarding yourself of a more holier-than-thou attitude and spirit towards an unbelieving world is that you ought to be willing to associate yourself with what Paul here calls the lowly. God wants genuine Christians to be unified, not divided, 
so that we can effectively serve Him and at the same time grow in our relationship with Him. To listen again to today's study from Romans chapter 12 entitled, The Christian and Retaliation, use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app available at the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. You can also listen to us online at searchthescriptures.org or order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and for today's program, request number ROM61. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our study in Romans 12 and looking again at the Christian and retaliation. That's tomorrow when again we search the scriptures.